Welcome to the LTID Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and on this podcast, we seek out the world's best researchers, coaches, support staff, teachers, and athletes to better understand the process of long-term athlete development. Don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform and 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50. That's LTADVIP50 at the LTID Network Hub website. This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures, or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Just a quick note to let you know about the launch of the LTAD Network regional events. These will be kicking off with our very first event happening in Scotland on the 24th of February between 6 and 9pm at Orium, the National Performance Centre. If you want to know more details, then head across to the LTAD Network website or social media accounts If you're based elsewhere in the UK, keep your eyes peeled for future events as we start to organize these and branch out across the UK. Welcome to the LTAD Network Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Derek Everly. Derek has taken a career path unique in Olympic sport. As an athletics coach, he's coached professionally at all levels along the developmental continuum and is widely regarded as a foremost expert in both youth development training and programming and elite training methodology. As a coach, he's produced three World Junior Championship medalists, of which two went on to become Olympic medalists. He was a development coach for Gary Reed, IAAF World Championships 800m silver medalist, Dylan Armstrong, Beijing Olympic shot put bronze medalist, and Sophie Hitchin, 2016 Olympic hammer throw bronze medalist. He's coached numerous national age grade, junior, and senior record holders, including Sultana Frizzell, the current Canadian record holder in the women's hammer throw. From 1998 to 2012, he was a national team coach for both Britain and Canada to every major championship on the global calendar, including the Olympic Games, IAAF World Championships, European Championships, Pan American Games, and Commonwealth Games. He was the Loughborough High Performance Training Centre Director for British Athletics, leading into the 2012 Olympic Games, where he coached the youngest athlete on the British Athletics team to her first Olympic final. From 2005 to 2009, he was a sports science manager for the Canadian Athletics Coaching Centre, Currently, he consults and coaches with federations and individuals worldwide on all aspects of developmental and high-performance programming, and he's the owner and operator of eviltracksport.com, a training and information resource for coaches, trainers, teachers, and parents. He's also the host of Evil Chat, the eviltracksport.com coaching podcast. Derek, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. 
Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. It's uh, I, I appreciate you um, fitting this into my my schedule. I know it's later there. What are you? Oh, no, I get I always think Britain's eight hours ahead. They're not. That's where that's when I was in BC there. What are you five hours ahead? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's 6 p.m. Yeah, yet. so it's, yeah, yeah. oh, it's, oh, you're six hours ahead. So you're six hours ahead. Yeah, that's yeah. still, so it's your evening. So thanks for taking, so thanks for accommodating that way. Not a problem at all. It's, it's, you know, important to have these kind of conversations and get, you know, people on to, to share their opinions and expertise. So help us dig into the brain of, of Derek Evely a little bit. When did you fall yeah, in love? I'm not love sure with, you want to do that. <laughs> when did you fall in love with sport? Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up a, a, a tree climber. You know, I was a real tree climber. And then at that graduated to uh, construction sites. You know, I, used to, I had a buddy of mine that lived next door and him and I used to go across the street. There's a big a number of construction projects, these office buildings that are still there where, where I grew up and it took them forever to build it. So we, we would go over there and jump around and climb things, climb cranes and stuff like that. things you I would shoot my kids if they tried doing, the, you know, these days. But uh, and then. Um, you know, so I, I did all the classic stuff when I was a kid, rode bike a lot and, you know, all that. Um, and then uh, when I was around, I guess it was about grade six, you know, so I was, what's that, 12, 11 or 12. I, uh, I, I saw a video on Al Order, the four-time discus uh, Olympic, cha Olympic champion, pardon me. And, um, uh, and that, you know, I was, it was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to do that. So I went out and bought a little, I've told the story before on other podcasts, but I, I went out and bought one of those black rubber discs. I, you know, I had to look it up in the phone book, call a whole bunch of sporting places. I think it cost me like six bucks for this discus or something. I took the bus over there, got it, started throwing it, taught myself how to throw, you know, over the years made up a little, I even made up a little hammer at one point with a cut off an, uh, an electrical cord and try to make a you know wrapped it taped it to a rock i think that lasted for like two throws and you know that that kind of thing and i got involved you know so that that got me involved in track and and uh eventually i i started off as a discus thrower then i was a thrower and then i started i like to jump so i started doing long jump triple jump uh and then it got to the point in high school where i was just doing everything trying trying everything and doing everything so i figured okay well might as well organize this so i started decathlon um uh, and uh yeah so i became i was a decathlete and and that sort of extended into my coaching being a generalist and yeah so so i you know that was that's pretty much it. i played soccer i played football i was never a team sport guy like i i couldn't i couldn't grasp the concept of team sports just <laughs> you know i think some people are like that I, I i don't know why but i just could not you know i liked it i yeah i played hockey too i did everything for like one year i think i played two years of soccer but track when i when i got into track and field or athletics it stuck and that was uh then i've been in it ever since yeah and so when did coaching appear on the horizon so you mentioned kind of the influence of decathlon in your coaching when did it start to become something that you you gave more attention to your time than competing yourself yeah i so i grew up uh only child in a single parent household just grew up with my mom so um you know co coaches were always a big part of my life and had huge influences on me 
um, teachers, coaches. Um, and so, um, you know, I always, I, I think in the back of my head, I always wanted to be, you know, like them. I always wanted to influence other people like them because they had an influence on me. I looked up to them. I respected them. So I just naturally, I don't think there was ever a clear decision on it, but I just always assumed I was going to be one of two things, a fireman, or I was going to be a teacher, one of the two. And that was always the plan. And I just kept going along with that. And then I uh, graduated from university uh, in Toronto. I, I grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and but I went to school in Toronto. I was out there for nine years. Uh, it was a big, big change in my life. The coaches I had there, Andy Higgins, Carl Drzejewski, uh, Bogdan Perposki, those are all coaches at that center. And then I I moved back to Vancouver and started to coach myself. Uh, coached a bunch of decals. Approached by some decathletes to 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 work with them. I said, "Yeah, I did that for two years, living in my grandparents' garage, you know, rodent-infested garage, and and uh, literally, and uh, yeah." And then um, then what happened was I was still planning on being a teacher. I had no intention. I just it's just you have to understand something where I come from, especially back in those days, there was just no opportunities for professional coaching in athletics, very, or at least if they, there were just very few of them. It's not something that you would plan uh, as a career because it just, the, the opportunities were so limited and they were all within universities and Canada just doesn't have a lot of those. Right. So, uh, so I always plan on being a teacher and then coaching volunteer part-time or on the side, you know, high school coaching, club coaching. But then um, these decathletes had these five decathletes. Things started going pretty good with them, some of them. And uh, I got a call one day that there was a pilot, sort of a pilot project coaching program going on. I was the father of a, of a young girl that was in this club uh, up in Kamloops, British Columbia. They called me up. I had a great talk with him. Um, I didn't even, I didn't realize that talk was my interview. It was, they hired me. And then I ended up uh, a couple months later, January of the next year was 1995, January 4th. I moved up there um, and started coaching professionally, you know, that's, and I've been doing that in some, I wouldn't say I've been coaching professionally, but I've been involved in the sport professionally most of the time since that. So I grew from that job to a, coaching job, a coaching center job at Edmonton for four years and then Britain for four years and then moved back to Kamloops and coached on my own um, for, you know, ever since then I've been sort of coaching on my own just recently. I, I moved to Chicago two and a half years ago and just recently um, I started working for uh, a man named James Coxworth out, outside of uh, in the suburbs in Chicago. He's a, um, a a benefactor, former hammer thrower, and he wants to make a difference and change, make a difference in the world. And so he's hired me to coach hammer to kids that probably otherwise wouldn't get the chance and don't have the means to, uh, to make it happen. So we're, yeah, so that's him and I are doing that and it's going real well. I'm real happy. So what was the role that you, I don't uh, know if I answer your question, I think, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. That's it's brilliant. So a bit of a, a route around, obviously Canada, but then also some forays overseas. So what what took you or what piqued your interest in coming to the UK, and what did that look like? What was the role there? Nothing really piqued my interest. It was more um, 
more I had been hired to be the quote sports science manager unquote at the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center, which was a basically like a coaching think tank sort of that was set up uh, was set up from the legacy of the 2001 World Championships. And a good friend of mine, uh, a close friend of mine, Kevin Tyler, had been had left a position in Nike to to be the director there. Um, and he'd probably been in that role about a year. And I just sort of up and quit my job in Kamloops one day, uh, just sort of spontaneous. Uh, back then I tended to do stuff like that, unfortunately. And, and, uh, when he, when he, when I told him about it, I think it was that day or the next day, he just said, I'll hire you right now. So just come on up. And so I went up there and, and, you know, he was a, you know, he, 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 I've, I've had a, this boss I have now is funny. I was just having this conversation with him the other night that, you know, I've had three bosses in my life that really understood me, you know, Kevin was the first. And then when I went to Britain, it was Kevin and Charles Van Comedy. And now it's Jim Cox with this guy I'm working for now. And that is that they just sort of like, let me do my thing. And they know they're going to get more than their paying for out of me if they just kind of let me be myself kind of thing you know what I mean because I'm I, I don't think I'm an easy person to manage but if I'm passionate about something and we you and I were talking about my latest podcast um, uh, that just came out on with on coach and partnerships uh, with Donna K Harris and Donna and I and there's another there's a second part to that where Donna and I talk about this you know I mean passion and coaching is, I mean, it's everything. Right. And so, you know, they, they, they understand that and, and uh, just sort of let me do my thing and, and, you know, and that's always worked out well. And so my point of all of that is that when Kevin got recruited, um, left Edmonton, when he got recruited to UKA, I knew that it was probably not going to be that long before I'd get a call and he would, uh, you know, and, and, and he would, want me to come and work there because him and I just, I think we did a lot of good stuff together. So he did. And I went over there and, and uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I, I'll never forget the, the day he called, uh, I was dropping my kid off at school and I saw this number and I saw the British area code and I went, I, I hit, you know, call. And I said, okay, when am I moving? <laughs> did he say hello? And he goes, he just laughed. He said, he said, as soon as you can, man. And I was like, okay. So, and then next thing I know, I was on a plane over there and met Charles and I loved it. And I loved my time in Britain. It was tough in a lot of ways, but it was really good for me professionally. I was completely unprepared for it, but yeah. So anyways, then I ended up in that, in the Loughborough Center director role. And uh, yeah, I think it, I struggled at first, but I got, once I got on my feet, um, yeah, it went really well, I think, you know. Fantastic. And then four years, did you say four years with UK athletics? Almost three and a half, four years, something like that. Somewhere in between there. I think I got there in uh, late August, early September of uh, 09. And I left it at the right at the beginning or at the end of December um, of 2012. So. And what were the disciplines that you were overseeing there? Was it you know, one specific discipline or were you multiple? Well, I, I was a center it? director. So I was, my job was to manage uh, 30, I think I had like, 30, it fluctuated, of course, but I had about 
somewhere between 30 and 35 staff, a combination of national team coaches, apprentice coaches, and support staff. And my job was to make them all work together and make sure that the center functioned properly. Coaching was not in my remit, but I told them when I went there, I said, look, I'm not taking this job unless I can do a little bit of coaching and do it as part of my job because I, I just, A, I wanted to do it. I'm a coach and I knew I would just hate a desk. You know, I, I'd done my job in Edmonton. I love that job with everything I have, but, and there was coaching as part of that, but it was also, there's a large desk component to it. And there, I knew there would be at, at UKA. So, uh, you know, I knew I had to get off, off my butt as much as I could. Otherwise I kind of go nuts and yeah. So then I, uh, you know, a couple of hammer throwers came to me and asked me to coach them. I said, yeah, you know, that went well. And so, yeah, so it was, uh, but coaching was not officially part of my job. My job was to, um, my job officially was to, like I said, run that center, but there was two other components that I put a lot of, um, a lot of time into one was coaching and one was coach development. So I, that's how I got to know Tom Crick. It was because Tom Crick was, was also hired by Kevin, uh, in that, in Britain. Um, he's a British dude that works with James in, in Qatar. Now he's the head coach there. And, uh, you know, got to be one of the most competent persons I've ever met. Um, and people persons. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, just, he was phenomenal. And, um, yeah, so I, I sort of helped him where needed to help develop some coach develop. I didn't put in that much into it, but I did, you know, some stuff here and there and did a lot of lecturing on coach development, a lot of ath long-term athlete development stuff. Um, if, you know, in terms of, teaching coaches how to make progressions and all of that, all the stuff that we're probably going to get into today. But I, I did a lot of that. A lot of that, I just sorted on my own back in Kamloops. I had some big successes there, uh, relatively big uh, successes. And so I kind of got this reputation of, of uh, as a development coach that had, you know, brought these athletes up from scratch and, who went on to win medals at major champs. And so, you know, it just was natural that I would, that I would lecture on stuff like that there present and try to share that experience with people. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I think long-term athlete development is a, is an area that, you know, a lot of federations and, and national governing bodies have a lot of literature on, but you know, it's not necessarily something that actually you see happening in real life very successfully in terms of people you know, keeping the end goal in mind, perhaps around, you know, an international senior level performance rather than, you know, junior world championships, for example, but also, mm -hmm. you know, coaches having that kind of little bit of kudos or reputation, you know, to get an athlete to perform now so that I look good rather than maybe leaving a bit of, you know, juice in the orange for that next bit, that next level. Because there's a lot of times, and I'm, I'm guessing you've seen this time and time again, where people maybe peak a few years too soon and they never quite arrive at the senior level. Yeah, it's... Uh... Well, I'm, I'm living it right now. So, so I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I made a conscious decision. Like mo most coaches start at a lower level working with, and by lower, I mean, lower level of age or ability with athletes, not a lower level of coaching. Cause I don't see development coaching as a, as any, as less than elite when it's done right. It's in a lot of ways harder much harder. And I'm not stroking anybody. When I say that, uh, I can be quite critical of development coaches sometimes, but when done properly, it is 
far harder, I think, in, in most ways than elite coaching. Although elite coaching in other ways is far harder than development coaching in terms of nuance and things like that. Um, but I, you know, m- most coaches move their want to move up. I did. And, but there was a point where, you know, just my heart wasn't really in it. Well, it, it was in it, but it's just, you know, I just, I think my heart is more into development coaching and I'm back. I got this opportunity now. Uh, it's all, I'm working with athletes from scratch. Very happy doing that. But I'm, you know, I'm in the U.S. now and they have a very unique system there and a lot of unique challenges to it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm living it now, man. I'm seeing it like, I, you know, trying to trying to help coaches sort of find their way in that regard. You know, it's difficult because a lot of the mistakes you make as a development coach or a high school coach um, don't bear themselves for years later. So nobody really attaches it to it, to the, you know what I mean? When a high school, and the, and the reverse is true. When you do a very good job as a development coach, a lot of times you don't get the credit for it, right? You, you know, the athlete goes on and has a successful career, which if it's done right, is probably going to peak a decade after they left your program as a development coach. And, and nobody, it's rare that the development coach gets the credit for laying that foundation, right? So yeah, it's really difficult, but you see it here. Like it is just everywhere, man. And, and, and especially in endurance and strength in those two areas um, and speed to some degree, but really in endurance and strength, because those are so, those abilities are so trainable that it's, you know, and, but to be fair, I must say, cause my, my attitudes and, and, or at least, well, I wouldn't say my attitudes towards any of this is changing in terms of what I would do, but my perspective and my, my ideas in terms of why, how it's happening and why it's being done, those are starting to become a little bit more um, empathetic, I guess, towards the coaches here, because you cannot overstate the push or the pressure for the college scholarship here. It's just, it's just shocking. Like it's, it drives everything. And so, you know, coaches that are in a position um, where they do want to do the right thing in terms of for the athlete. um, And that can be different, you know, the right thing, quote unquote, for some athletes different than others, right? Because the right thing for an athlete with Olympic final or medal talent is a you may approach that a bit. You're going to approach that a bit differently than the right thing, quote unquote, for someone who does has, doesn't have that talent, but has a talent to get to, you know, to get to the NCAA and get a scholarship because you might have to push the envelope a little bit, but it's how you do it. Right. So I may have gone off track there a bit, but you can't, I mean, that pressure is massive. And so um, coaches that are in a position where they want to do the right thing, it's not as it's not easy because you are surrounded by people who for the most part aren't and are not are not don't you know in in fairness probably don't have a lot of time to consider it doing everything else they're doing a lot of them a lot of them are teachers with full-time jobs and you know 
uh, and a lot of coaching jobs here, coaching positions come with all kinds of other responsibilities. I get it. I mean, I did that for 11 years in Camelot. I ran everything, did everything. And so it's, um, you know, it's hard, but at the same time, it's not an excuse to not, not prepare the best program that you can for an athlete. You, you have a responsibility to do that, whether you're professional or you're volunteer and you're working with development athletes, you have that ethically and morally, you have a responsibility to provide the best program that you can for them. And if you don't, you're not doing your job as good as you could. And, but, you know, like I said, you have to understand the situation a lot of these people are in. It's not as easy as you think. It's very easy for us to sort of point the finger and say, yeah, that's not being done right. Or, you know, whatever. And uh, it's, it's difficult. So, you know, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's definitely, it's not easy. That's one of the reasons or my motivation, for example, for this podcast is, and I'm sure it's the same. You've experienced this, you know, the vast majority of coaches working at that developmental level are people who stepped into the gap. They've gone, Hey, we need a coach for this age group. Is anyone willing to throw their hand up? And, you know, there may be someone who's got some basic, uh, you know, very limited level of support in a coaching qualification or two, and then they've kind of just been left to it for a decade and maybe not had a, any support around professional development or, you know, um, mentoring, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to be critical of those people, but actually a lot of the time, those people are operating on their own with next to no support, next to no infrastructure yeah. behind them to help them improve what they're doing. You know, they're just planning it as they go after they, you know, as you say, leave their full-time job or whatever. But what are some of the things So you mentioned that potentially development development level coaching could be harder than that elite level. What were some of the factors that play into that, do you think? Well, if you look at elite coaching, it's all about individuality, right? Like it's all about, like there is no real, you know, you, 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 like you're at the highest level, you're pretty much done with progression. So everybody's got to be taken, you know, uh, as, as is in terms, it, it's highly individualistic and to, and athletes at that level, especially near the ends of their careers, they have little trainability left, right? They're, they're, they're doing, they're putting out maximum effort to get minimal return on that effort. So elite coaches have to, you know, really look outside the box. And as I always say, look under every rock and stone to find, find the inputs that they're going to be able to put into programs to create an adaptive response. Okay. That's, that's elite coaching. That's what it is. That's, you know, that's the nature of it. it Development coaching is much simpler that way in terms of in terms of getting success. It's in terms of an athlete improving, quote unquote. I mean, God, if you just did nothing, they're going to improve. Like if you you don't you know if you just taught them skill only, they would improve, right? I mean, we know that, and that's you know, and development coaches, especially ones who hang their hat their hat on on success, quote unquote as a you know the 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 justification for everything that they do they have to recognize that 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 athletes when they're young are going to improve rapidly and in leaps and bounds and so if if success is your only measure of whether you're a good coach or not well you know that's not the whole story right you want them to be successful it's got to be number one because nobody likes to suck at doing what they're doing but you also have to look at, are they healthy? 
And are they trainable? So in other words, if you put the two of those together, are they well prepared for what's going to come down the road if they have, you know, whether it's whether it's only an NCAA career or whether it's a, a long, full, you know, eight to 12 year high performance career, right? So they, they have to understand that. But it's difficult because you as a development coach, then you do have to have progressions there. It's not all out of the box. We know that there are certain things, generally speaking, that should and should not be done at certain levels. And you do, and, you know, um, whereas with an elite coach, the gloves are off the every all abilities are maximally trainable. You, you can you, you can go to town. There's nothing holding you back. Whereas the challenge in developmental coaching is holding yourself back to, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, that you, you shouldn't, you know, that there's, that there's no specialization until the athlete leaves high school or becomes a high, no, it's, there's, you start specializing early on, but it's how you do it. And there's gotta be a progression. You can't just go all in on things and, dump a bunch of high performance training on a 14 or 15 year old or, or worse, you know, younger. So, you know, um, so it's difficult, more difficult for a development coach in the sense that they have to think and they have to create progressions. And then there's the other thing is that they tend to deal in groups. So you've got more athletes than an way more athletes typically than an elite coach would have. And so that brings up all kinds of issues, right? Because then you're talking about individual responses to training. Now, you can also look at that as a, as a, as a, uh, as a plus in developmental coaching, because generally speaking with progressions, if you lump them into two year stages, most kids are going to fit into them. Some are be on the, on the, on the edges, but you know, it's, it's, but you have to deter, you can't just do everything with everybody you can't just you can't train your grade 12s or your seniors the way you're treat you're training your freshmen there's got to be a progression there and so they it it requires planning you know people think of of periodization and planning pardon me as a uh, as an elite concept it's that it's more of a con it's, it's a more important concept at the developmental level because you have to have a structure in place to stop you from exploiting um, exploiting some of these abilities, which at that level are quite sensitive, to, from exploiting them too soon. And so, from and I don't know about other people, but for me, that means writing it down, man. I got to have something. I got to have something in place that that, generally speaking, that that reminds me of where I want to be with an athlete at any given stage. Right. And <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, and then of course, from that, not that everybody fits into a recipe, but you know, because some athletes are going to be late bloomers or early bloomers and you got to account for that as well. Right. And then you have, you know, the issue I talked about before where, you know, maybe you do have an athlete that has a chance to, you know, to get a scholarship. And so there, boom, right there, if you recognize that in grade nine or 10, and you think, you know, if, if you know how to recognize talent and you have a good eye for it and you can determine that, yeah, this, this kid 
maybe this kid could, could get a scholarship. And let's face it, scholarship is all based on performance. They don't give shitty athlete scholarships unless it's a very special circumstance and, and, and there's something there that the coach sees nobody does. But generally speaking, it's based on performance. And so, but you also, you, you know, that maybe that athlete is not going to be involved in the sport at a high level at 30 years old. So you can, you can bend the rules a little bit, right? Like you can, you know, because maybe that scholarship is going to change that kid's life. Well, then, I mean, you know, that's tough, right? That's a tough decision that, that a coach has to be able to make. You can't just, you know, you don't want to go full on full in with that athlete and potentially hurt them. Or, you know, you also don't want them to get the scholarship and then have a shitty four years when they're there because they're tapped out, but you also want to make sure that they actually get it. So you want to, you want to push the envelope a bit. If, if you can, there's a way to do it, but it takes nuanced thinking and it takes some planning and it takes some experience. And so it's just, you know, I just, I just think too many people don't think about that. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting uh, idea that, you know, actually you almost have to hold yourself back at the developmental level because nine times out of 10, you know, if I come across an athlete and they talk me through the program they've done before they came to us and, you know, it's crazy, you know, bands and chains and velocity based training or whatever, nine times out of 10, that coach is very early on in their career. And I'm like, why are you, why are you expending all these kind of, you know, little tricks and, and mm. things to squeeze the last bit of juice when you're 14. It's like, yeah. you know, we should be saving that for when we're really. Yeah, at the absolutely. Last and, and, and honestly, you're doing the elite coach or the high performance coach a favor by doing that. Right. Those get, pardon me, that's my dog. He's barking at the mailman or something, but you know, like you don't want them. You don't want to leave the high performance coach with nowhere to go. That makes it's a, that is that, that is probably the hardest type of coaching, right. Is the I would say the the high performance or here in the U.S. I would equate that to like an NCAA Division One coach or an elite coach that has to deal with athletes that are hurt or tapped out, right? For whatever reason they have them, and and their job is to take an athlete in their early twenties and try to build a restore rehab build back a career that was, you know, for whatever reason, it just, you know, they're, they're not in a good place to do that. That is the hardest, the hardest type of coaching. So if you can get a, if, if you're a development coach and you can, uh, you know, get an athlete to perform and be healthy and preserve their trainability, which means, you know, preserving their speed qualities and things like that, um, then that's tough, man. That's not easy. And, and, and instill in whatever, in the sports that required a, you know, a solid technical model within the, or a technical stereotype within the athlete. That's not easy to do, man. That is like, that is gifted, gifted coaching. And so, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I've been, I've been, uh, you know, I've had some people take shots over the, you know, me talking, you know, beating up, shots of me or things I've said, which is fair enough, right. About, you know, sometimes it comes, I can, I can come across as anti-developmental or I use the wrong word or whatever the fuck it is, but it's not, but you know, I'm a big proponent 
of coaching in general and developmental coaching, but I, but you know, there's a way to do it. Right. And, and, and I get the, I get the difficulties that are out there. I'm going through them now and, but there's a way to do it, you know? So that's my, yeah, you, rant. you mentioned around, you know, writing down some of your, I guess not, not a script, but a framework or a point of reference. I think that's really important. Certainly something that I've, my thinking has benefited from over the years, because it is that one catharsis of, you know, putting it down on the paper and going, okay, actually maybe this isn't great and I need to tweak this or that. But just the clarity that gives your thought process and something to refer back to, I think is really important and something that probably every coach should engage in some way. What are some of the frameworks you, you kind of refer to for yourself when you're, when you're coaching from that developmental level and taking an athlete onwards? What are some of the, your kind of, I guess, your processes or your, your thoughts for reference? Well, I guess another way to look at that question is what does my long-term model look like? Is that sort of what, okay, well, first of all, I would say, like, I'm going through this right now because I do, I do a lot of consulting right now. So I'm consulting with a number of different people that are at this stage, whether it's in a, um, uh, an organizational setting, a group setting, or whether it's an, it's, it's a, it's an individual coach that's working with a, a group of athletes. And it just so happens I've, I have two clients right now that are going through this. They're building these. I, I say the first thing you got to do is have a model in place, have some kind of progression in place. It doesn't, you don't have to get into the super minute details at all, you know, but have, have a plan in place on one page, a chart that has all of the, you know, on across the top, it'll be all the, the abilities plus the you know all the various categories that you that you are going to pres, you know prescribe for each level right so it might be you know the five abilities and it'll have you know the level that they're at the ages the school level the competitive level it'll it might have recovery and all these things and then down the other axis is going to be the different stages you know the ages right and where those columns and rows meet you're, you're gonna in that those boxes you're gonna have a few words on what your philosophy is at that stage for that that you know the, the ones that need you know meeting out the abilities like strength you know you're gonna say well this is at this age this is how i these are the basic parameters around my strength my my, my philosophy on strength development and then you know and and it's, it's not and the problem with these things is people get so wrapped up in the minutia of it. They get so wrapped up in, well, what is, you know, what is, I need to do this program or that program. And it's really, it's about having a progression, right. And getting it down and the simple act of going through putting that thing together, <clears throat> which for me, when I was a young coach, I thought everybody was doing it. So I was doing it and I was doing it in a large panic every year for 11 years when I was in, in Kamloops and revising and, you know, always refining because I thought everybody was doing it. And so I thought for me to keep up, you know, I was in a very isolated situation. It was, a you know, which in a lot of ways is a pain in the ass, but in a lot of ways did me a lot, of, you know, uh, uh, in retrospect, did me a lot of good because, you know, I was, uh, I was able to do this and, and put all these together. And so I, I'm working with some people right now that are doing that. And so if you take, you know, you take, let's say you take, I mean, strength is the easiest one. I always use that as an example because, 
it, it's so trainable. It's the one everybody wants to talk about, but you could do this for, you could do this for endurance, strength, speed, skill, um, depending on the sport. And it's just, you know, so you basically like, if we were to look at strength, right. So the way I look at it and I, you know, I, this is just how I came across doing, this is what made sense to me. Nobody told me this. It was just sort of how I put it together uh, over the, the 10 years when our 11 years, I was in Kamloops. And when I started off, cause I knew I had to have something and I was a generalist coach. I was the only coach I had 50 athletes. I could not afford to be unorganized. So I knew, you know, there was that aspect to it. So, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, uh, I get, I, they start training with me formally around 14 because just because that's when it, um, excuse me, that's in our provincial association. That was the start of, uh, well, not the start, but that was the start of a, of a series of two year stages, right? Before that it was called junior development. It was like 13 and under, it was very loose, very, um, you know, it's competitive, but it's, but it's, you know, there's no real formality to what the recommendations were or anything like that. But once you get a, you know, it's also 14 years old is also the, the year that you start high school in Canada. So here it's 15 in, in, in the U S so it made just made sense, 14 years old. So I broke it, everything up into two year groups. Um, and in the first two, two year stage, so I made 14 where I started formal training. Okay. So then I, so then, you know, in that 14 and 15 year old block, okay, what is the nature of the strength training that I'm going to do there? Well, I was doing a lot of research and came across some, some, um, some information that told me that, you know, you got to develop the stabilizers before you really hit home on the prime movers, right? So what does that mean? Well, what that means is you need an unstable environment for them to, to, to do their exercises. And so whatever exercise choice I'm going to make in terms of the pattern, it's going to be typically on one leg, right? Like unilateral, contralateral, not that it's going to be, not that it's a page for the Bible and I wouldn't show them a squat or anything, but that's generally speaking where I would, I, I would stick to. And then, uh, and then in terms of intensity, I, I, you know, I, I knew, I knew enough that I didn't, I knew I didn't want to go to one R, you know, percentages of one RM. Then I thought that would be too much, especially for all the, none of the kids I was getting were, were in any, you know, some of them were in pretty good shape, but they hadn't been doing any real formal lifting or anything like that. So, so I went with 20 to 40% of body weight. I think I got that from Pollock when Charles Pollock, but I'm not really sure. It was a long time ago. He, there was some input from some of his work in there. I know it was influenced by. Um, and then, so then the next two years, 16 and 17, it was, you know, I would, it was the same thing, but I would up it to 40 to, to 60%. And I would formally introduce bilateral patterns. So I formally introduce uh, uh, squat, you know, uh, uh, squat patterns and things like that. I would do Olympics in that first stage, 14 and 15, but I would try to do it, you know, um, like split snatches and split cleans and stuff like that, a lot, which has really gone sort of by the wayside. I'm probably the only person in the world that, that still prescribes a split snatch, but, um, you know, it made, it just fit into my model really well. Right. 
And then, um, and then I would up it. I don't know if I said this already, but I would up the, the low to 40 to 60% at that 16 and 17 year old age group. And of course, you know, the idea of competency is just a, it's just, it's, it's a veil that, that is over all this whole thing. It's a blanket that fits over everything. If they can't do whatever it is I'm asking them to do competently, we don't do it or we descend it so they can do it. Right. I will just, you know, that's a given. Right. And then when they get to 18, 19, then it's like, you know, then we're starting to get into the real formality of lifting. Okay. In terms of barbell work anyways, and that's only one part of strength, of course, but, um, you know, then we are doing, then we are, then we started working off one RMs and, or, you know, or testing at three RM is what we would do, do it, extrapolate a, a max from three RM. That's always what I use. Now, nowadays I would use Barbelocity, right? I wouldn't even, wouldn't even worry about that. I would just use, and that's what I do. I'm a big fan of that. And so, you know, there you go. That's a basic, there's six years right there of progression that takes an athlete from never you know, having little or no competency or experience in weightlifting right through to, uh, you know, then, then they're at, what, what is that? 18, 19, you know, the last year in high school. And then that sets them up well for what's going to come next. It's just a no brainer. And then anyway, so there's, there's two years of that. And then after that, it would be the gloves are off, right? The gloves are off. And before this progression would be, you know, as much general activity as you could and i never had to really worry about that back then because kids were just generally even though everybody was starting to bitch about how inactive kids were it's nothing like today i mean they were you know they were uh you know um kids were pretty active and so the kids i was getting were and you know they're ready to start that formal training for the most part at 14 whereas nowadays you get kids at 14 that can't do can't can barely hold up their own body weight outside of a straight up standing posture, right? They can't do a basic squat, you know, a lot of them because they're just not, they're just, they're just, they have very little experience. And so, and so that would be strength, right? And then if you want to, and then I would have, uh, you know, power would be a parallel progression alongside of that. And I would tend to switch things in terms of power, in terms of the, in terms of the, um, in terms of the, the movement patterns. So with weights or formal barbell training, where at 14 and 15, I would start off with unilateral and bilateral or unilateral and contralateral patterns. When it came to jumps, I would do less of that, right? I would make that more bilateral oriented. And then as they got older, I would shift it more towards uni and contralateral. So for instance, they would do basic jumps, double leg jumps, when they were younger, not exclusively, they would, I would do ankle hops and some easy bounds and stuff like that. And maybe some hops, but generally that it shifted more in that direction in terms of pattern. So it was kind of like this, this reverse progression in terms of patterning. And yeah, that worked for me. Right. And then of course, you know, there's other things that flavored it in the general strength area. I, I rather than use uni and contralateral patterns as my guiding my guiding um pattern in terms of movement pattern my, i would use um movement planes more right you know all as it gets more centered towards the trunk i would use movement planes as more as my guide and so i all of the routines i had that i set up the 
the strength routines, the ab routines, the, the, whatever it was, I devised them all with, with, uh, sagittal frontal and transverse planes in mind. So in other words, twisting, a lot of twisting, a lot of side to side movements, you know, frontal plane is always much harder because you have, you have, you know, in terms of being a strict frontal plane movement, there's fewer exercise to choose from. It's hard, but you know, so that's, and none of that I read out of a book. It just all made sense to me as I started to study anatomy, physiology, um, and the work a lot of other strength scientists were doing. So, you know, they're throughout that whole period, I would, you know, like the primal movement patterns was, was influential as well. Right. Cause that makes sense. Right. You want to pull, you want to push, you want to twist, you want to lunge, you want to squat. And I think there's another one, but, but, uh, or, you know, so, but none of those things were in and of itself, like, like none of those things I just talked about were in and of itself, uh, defined the, the progressions really. It was more, the important thing to me was that you had a progression and those nuances in there, like in terms of how you actually structured, it just has to make sense. Right. Like to me. And now, you know, after having talked to James, I really like his approach and, and, um, uh, from what I've heard, I, I have to get more into his stuff is, uh, is it Dan Baker, Dan Baker, the Australian guy. I mean, apparently he has a really interesting, um, uh, sort of, a uh, guys like a, a framework for, for which he starts strength, right. You know, my thing was to use unilateral and contralateral patterns and competency based. I think his is, I don't know, he had, they have a battery of, of exercises. And if you can't do all of these competently, you don't move on. That's perfect. That makes perfect sense to me, right? I, I have to look a bit more into it. But, you know, in talking to James, who was on my podcast, I, I loved what he had to say about that. It was, it was, I thought, yeah, that's brilliant, man. But it doesn't, there's no one way to do it. I don't think you just, you just has to make sense to you. And, you know. Yeah, that's something that I kind of brush up against uh, a lot here in the UK. Our uh, sort of high school level strength and conditioning is, I'd say, you know, miles behind America in terms of it being kind of a formal thing. It's often very much, you know, as you said, teachers or ex-players giving stuff. And, and very often, you know, I have this conversation and there's no formal planning. You know, so what's your what's your curriculum like for, you know, moving progressions on? And there's nothing there. It's all kind of like copy and pasted off what I've seen lately or, you know, mm. what was the in vogue on Instagram last week? Um and I think it's they're really missing a trick there because a if if you've had success how do you repeat it because you don't know what you did, and b if you don't have success how do you make sure you don't make that same mistake again? Um, so it's one of those things you know once you get down this rack you, you kind of realize as you said getting caught up in the minutia you're never going to perfect this thing because you're constantly going to be thinking oh I could make this a little bit better or that a little bit better but just the exercise of doing it uh, in, in yeah. and of itself makes your coaching a lot more robust. Totally, totally. So. I say this to coaches. I mean, I just, I just think pragmatically and sometimes that gets in my way, but I say this to young coaches all the time. Like I, you know, there, there was years there where I was doing a lot of lecturing on periodization, a lot of lecturing on planning. And, you know, I'm known as a big planner. I do less of it now than I did then, especially since the whole Bonner check thing has come into my, my life. Uh, and, but I say to coaches, you know, like, like the big thing now is, is, you know, don't plan right? Like, don't, don't, I wouldn't say the big thing. That's, that's reducing it too much, but you know, the idea 
is that nowadays, you know, everything should be individualized and, you know, how can you plan a year in advance? You don't know where the athlete's going to be. So how can you plan what they're going to do? And yeah, I get all that, but, but you have to have something. Right. And I think, I think that people in my position in the sport that have, or whatever sport it is in the sporting world that have an influence on your younger coaches forget sometimes that sometimes just the act of doing it is important. Right. And so I say to coaches, I, I say to young coaches all the time, do a plan, put a plan, a, a, an annual plan together. This is where I start. I, so for in my sport, the off season begins in September, October, and you and it goes for basically a year and you know you're going to end it sometime in july august if it's high school it's going to be whatever it'll be shorter but whatever let's say it's a year so what you do is you write it all out and you and you you do exactly what i was talking about with the the, the long-term athlete model so for whether it's one athlete or a group of athletes when I did this in Kamloops, I would do one for my throws group at, at one of those two-year age blocks, or I do one for each of those two-year age blocks. I do one for the jumpers, do one, you know, it was a general one-year plan, but it's the act of writing all of it down and having all of the, uh, even, even just because what's the first thing you have to do with, with a plan? You got to categorize everything. You got to, you got to look at what you're going to do and you got to divide it up into, you, you have to classify it. Now, you know, Vondercheck has come up with this classification model. That's really simple. So I, I promote that a lot because it's very simple for people to wrap their heads around and it works really well. Um, but it doesn't have to be that. I mean, you know, so in other words, what is the content? What are you planning for? Well, if it's a sprinter, then you're going to have to go, okay. The first question that you're going to have to ask yourself is, well, what types of speed am I going to trade? Well, that's a different, you know, the answer to that question is completely different. If you are working with a 22 year old um, NCAA finalist <laughs> in the, in, in the hundred meters than it is with a 14 year old grade nine student. Okay. Cause there's certain things you're going to do with one that you're not going to do with the other. Right. So, you know, um, for the younger one, it's going to be more about acceleration and the development of, of max speed and it. And it's not even really, it's almost not about the development as much. It's about the pr preservation of of those qualities because as we know a lot of speed is largely inherent yes it can be developed but it's largely inherent its expression comes through in growth and strength you know gains in growth and, and strength and so you know um so actually putting together that plan forces you to confront all of these realities right you know unless you just do it blindly and you just write one plan and everybody from 14 years old to 24 does the same thing. But I, I don't, I don't really see too many people. If you're, if you're thoughtful enough to actually go out of your way to sit down and write a plan, you're probably going to consider what you're doing a little bit more than that. Right. Does that make sense? Did, okay. So, you know, and I tell them just, just, just start it. it just, you know, because, and then what'll happen is once you get all of that sorted, and when I used to do it, the timeline was horizontal, 
and all of the components I was planning for were vertical or are vertical. Um, there'd be, I would classify everything into the four different uh, categorizations or classifications that Bonnerchuk used, and then I would subclassify everything. So if it's sprints, it would be CE would be, you know, the speed work. And then the subcategory, the sub subcategories there would be acceleration, maximal speed, speed endurance, special endurance, whatever it is for what, you know, and some of those would be there for some athletes and some wouldn't be there for others. Right. And so then where everything meets in terms of the timeline and these different abilities, you have, then you got to start considering, okay, well, I got to look at this horizontally. So I got to look at this. When am I, when am I introducing all of these abilities, right? Or, or the, the exploitation of all these abilities, the training of these abilities. Okay. So that's, so then you actually got to sit down and think, how am I going to dose this out in terms of timelines? How am I, you know, when do I want to do this type of work as opposed to this type of work, or do I want to do them all together? which comes to the next thing you got to consider, which is the vertical component of it. So that's, and that's something that very few people, at least back in the day, were really considering. Uh, when I first started lecturing a lot of this stuff is they don't consider the vertical component. And that's one of the reasons, again, why you got to do the plan, because it forces you to think about that. So in other words, let's say that you say, okay, I got all of these different components. I've got all these, I got these five different types of speed that I, that I want, that I know I want to train. Okay. Let's forget about where the athlete is for a second. Let's just say I got, let's say it's a high performance athlete and they got five different types of speed. And then maybe you got four or five different kinds of strength, right? You've got maximal strength. You've got speed strength. You've got power. You got plow metrics. It would, however the hell you classify it, whatever it is, you got that. And then you got general strength and then you got, you know, whatever else skill, you know, if it's, let's say it's a, a throwing, let's say it's a throwing, whatever it is. Well, then you got to figure out how are all of those abilities going to jive with each other? Because I tell you, man, one of the things that used to drive me crazy when I would do my plans is that I would want to do all these things. I'd want to, I would really want to make sure that I was hitting all these bases. But then when I did my, the first draft of my plan, I would look at it and go, holy shit, there's no way I could, I, you know, I would look at, there would be a three week cycles in the year where I've, where everything overlapped. And I was trying to, I was trying to train all those abilities that I just described at once. I was like, it can't be done. It's too, it's too much. Right. So there's got to be some shift there in terms of overlapping, of course, and, and shifting of where you're introducing and where you're developing all of these different um, classifications of exercise or abilities or however you want to look at it, right? And the, the simple act of doing that forces you to confront that. And then that's when you get to that point, that's when things start to come together in your head. That's when things start to go, oh, now I know I really got to think about, you know, like if I'm doing if and then and then you get to the next problem which is let's say you deal with all that you get the plan and then you know you you let it sit for a week or a couple of days you come back and look at it you know it's like writing an essay right you know like you know like when you first write the first draft it's, it all was so great you had all these ideas in your head and you, you know oh man that was awesome and you let it sit in a drawer for a couple of days and then you come back you look at it and go holy shit 
I can't believe, you know, it just looks, parts of it look terrible. The overall message is good, but parts of it, you, you, they jump out at you. You didn't see them when you originally wrote it down. It's the same thing with making a plan, right? So you have to, so then, so then you look at it, you go, okay, well, I got to change that because that just makes, but then, then you get this domino effect you, you, or it's like a cog effect, right? You change that. Oh shit. I got to change that. You change that. Oh my God. I got to change. And then, you know, and at some point you have to stop and you got to, you got to be happy with what you got and then understand that that is, it's a guide. It's not the volumes and the intensities that you that you came up with a year in advance yes it's probably going to change so good you have to just accept that but the but the actual act of putting it all together helps develop your system of training in your head and that's how for some people that's how it's done i think hmm. you mentioned bondage a couple of times now so let's dig into that how how i mean you mentioned the way you view it as it's this is a really simple way of conceptualizing different abilities or different uh, activities. So give us an idiot's guide to, to the Bonnerchuk model. What does that look like for you in, in the way you think about it? Well, the Bonnerchuk system or his class exercise classification system? More is classification. Though, yes. Okay. Let's start there because I mean, dude, this is this, I mean, my, the course I sell on his methodology on my website is 64 videos long. Okay, so it's it, it's complicated. It's it's not complicated, but trying to educate somebody in it, you know, there's a lot of nuance within the practice of it. That is, you know, so. But the first thing is, is you have to again. It's like making that plan, right? You got to determine what are you going to, you know, what are you going to train, and what is the language with which you are going to use to, to. Um, to describe everything to yourself, really. Okay. Um, so he, he came up with this system, which I think is brilliant. It doesn't, it doesn't cover everything in terms of um, work that can be performed. And I think that in itself says a lot because the type of work it does not, it does not cover um is uh you know there's controversy on whether a lot of people do that or not and that's basically uh unloaded drill work or or you know drill work that is not really specific but kind of you know you know what i mean like a, a skipping a or something like that but anyways we we, we can get in, into that in a minute but essentially came up with four classifications all of them are based on two things does it look like the competitive event does it follow it in pattern and does it stimulate the same systems? Okay. Right. That's a pretty general way that you can apply it to anything, any sport. So at the top of the, at the top of the pyramid and, and I give credit to Tom Crick because Tom Crick, when I first described this to him, he was, he was, he thought, Oh my God, because here's a guy that is who has been tasked with rewriting and redoing the entire British athletics educational model okay and uh and imagine you know before before this what i'm about to describe you know nobody could really agree on on a lot of um on a lot of terminology right if special strength would could mean a million different things speed could mean a million different things speed endurance is one that is just gets you know really you know taught and 
you know, Tom can tell you a great story about him and I sitting down trying to figure out, trying to map out speed one day. And we came up with what, you know, well, Tom did more than I did, but came up with a really, you know, a really good definition of all the different speed uh, components. But anyways, so the first one is, um, uh, is, is, you know, hits those two right on the head. Those two, uh, do, does it look like it? Does it stimulate the same si systems? Hits it right on the head. It is, it is the competitive event in its entirety. Okay. Right. So if you are a high jumper, it's high jumping with it, with an approach over a bar. Okay. Um, pretty straightforward. Now, some sports, it's it's still straightforward, but the the bandwidth of movement, especially in open loop activities, is huge, right? Because like thick soccer, what is what is the CE? What is it? It's called the the first one is a competitive exercise, the CE. What's a CE in soccer? It's playing soccer in a game, right? You know, that's well, what does that mean? Well, you know, you get whereas a shot putter. If you're a rotational shot putter, that means something very specific and, and concise in terms of movement, right? So anyways, that's the CE. The next one down is called the SDE, Specific Development Exercises. And those are also, well, those also follow the competitive exercise, or they are the competitive movement in form, and they sti stimulate the same system, but they're broken down into component parts in terms of form. So, and they can be overloaded. So in, you know, so these are, the, these are the, aside from the actual sporting event itself, these are the exercises that really drive form, okay? So if you are a, you know, I'll use my sport again. If you are a javelin thrower, you know, um, uh, you know, then a, a, some sort of standing throw with a ball or even a javelin would be an SD. It would be the javelin throw, but without the run-up, or it could be the run-up, or it could, you know, there could be the run-up with a weighted vest. You could be throwing, um, you know, doing, doing like a, a javelin movement with release with a medicine ball, something like those, you know, those types of exercises where it looks like it broken down and, and it could be overloaded, may not be overloaded, but it could be overloaded in sprinting, you know, and, and these, there's no fine line between these there's gray areas there. So the, you know, a real gray area in sprinting is towing, right? So if you're doing, you know, uh, if you're doing an acceleration towing a sled, that could be easily be at SDE, right? If you're doing a full out acceleration with towing a sled with minimal weight, that probably ekes its way up into CE a bit. You know what I mean? It doesn't really matter as long as you understand where you're putting them, right? And then the next level down, and this is the one that causes all the issues usually is SPE, specific preparation exercises. So these are general exercises in a sense because they're preparatory, they, they don't follow the movement pattern of the competitive event, but they use the same major muscle groups, okay? And they stimulate the same system. So these, you know, the, typically, these would include your weight room exercises, okay? So you think of a clean, you think of a thrower, okay? Think of a thrower in track and field and doing a clean. It's a perfect example right so clean is it's not the competitive movement 
you could argue it's similar in some way, especially in the hammer a little bit, but not really. Uh, but it definitely uses the major muscle groups. And you clean, in terms of intensity, it's very similar to throwing. It's intensive, right? You can't really clean, like nobody really, you could, but you can't really clean at 20 reps with a light weight. Not, it's just not practical, right? You know what I mean? Like every, you know, you keep it short, explosive. The, the nature of the movement is fast. And so that's, you know, typically your weight room exercises are involved or are fall into this category, SPE. Uh, as you go further down a bit, you know, then squats, deadlifts, other types of lifting patterns fall into that. And then below it at the very bottom, the fourth one is called the general preparation exercises, GPE, which don't follow the movement pattern and form and don't stimulate the same system. So they're not explosive. They're not, if you're a thrower, let's say, they wouldn't be explosive. So these are gonna be, for a thrower, these would be high repetition, um, general strength exercises. Uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect classification system. I, for me, for throwers, uh, a GPE is, you know, a, what, in terms of how it looks on my program, it is what I call ancillary strength. So a lot of twisting exercises with barbell or with weights, um, um, a lot of general strength type stuff that doesn't involve full, uh, full extensor chain exercises. So, you know, stuff like lunges, squats, cleans, those would all be SPE, but stuff like, the, uh, you know, twists, uh, abdominal exercises, specific back exercises, shoulder exercise, those all fall within, within uh, GPE. So, and that's essentially it. Everything falls in there. Now, the only thing that doesn't fit those two criteria that I talked about at the beginning, does it, does it look like it or does it stimulate the same system? are things like shadow movements, right? Like, uh, you know, learning movements that are unloaded, drill work, some types of drill work, depending on what it is, right? And so, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a debate people can have, but in Bonnerchuk's mind, who he came up with this, in Bonnerchuk's mind, those don't have zero transfer. So, you know, he wouldn't say don't do them. He would just say they don't fit into this classification. You, they're fluff. They don't influence the system in a physiological way, right? They, they are the, you, not that you wouldn't use them. You'd use them for learning. You'd use them to remind athletes of certain aspects of skill that they need to uh, that they need to develop and things like that. But in terms of your hardcore planning, you know this. The, the, they really don't fit into this classification. So does that all make sense? Yeah. And 100%. that's it. Yeah, it's really good. And I think, you know, as people, if people are new to the idea of planning, like we said, and maybe not sat down, it's a good little framework to, to start with thinking about your sport or your event. And yeah. what are some of the things I consider to be really high in their level of transfer or, or really general, you know, early off season stuff helps yeah. having a, a bit of a start of categories to, to put things into. Like, you well, said. I mean, you know, kudos to Tom when, when, I mean, I never would have thought of it, but um, when him and I talked about this or he first learned it and then I went through it all with them, he was, you know, he instantly recognized the value in that model for communication across 
populations, right? Like, so here's a guy who has got to communicate to very quickly, I might add, to hundreds, if not thousands of coaches within the UK athletics world, you know, uh, coaching population. And let's face it, like people can't agree on what speed endurance is. That's kind of that one term, like how the hell are you going to do that? So this gave a fresh start to everything. And so he adopted it as the language that we would use. And I, I got to hand it to him, man, because I like people come to me still today that British from all over the world that all get it. They've all adopted it because not all of them, but a lot of them have adopted it as their language. Not, and that's, and this is just the language. This is the exercise classification. So this is not the Bonner truck system. This is the framework from which you organize all of your exercises so that you can do the system. That's a whole different conversation, but, but a lot of people have come to me and, and said, you know, they know it. Like people I've never met, they haven't taken the monitor truck course, but they know they say, oh yeah, I have the CE and we just have, and we just go right into a conversation on, on how they're going to, you know, or, or whatever it is, question they have or comment they have, or we have a conversation on training and, and boom, we have a language with which we can, we can communicate. Whereas so many times I've had conversations, especially in speed and especially if, if it, if you're a speed power coach and you're talking to an endurance coach and the endurance coach, yeah, well, we're doing a lot of speed work right now. Well, what does that mean? And I'm not being critical. I'm just saying to them, it is, it is speed work, but to a hardcore, uh, hundred meter sprint coach, one, you know, a short sprint coach speed means typically means something very specific, right? It means maximal velocity, right? Uh, and, Whereas with a lot of endurance coaches, speed can mean just, you know, faster than race pace. Right. And those two different things. Right. So. Or they yeah, I think that's, that's really important. It's uh, it's something, it's an interesting one that, that gives the framework for communication. A friend of mine who works in a foreign country in Thailand, um, I had a conversation with him. He was saying actually one of the first things I realized I had to do was say, when we use this word, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. When we use this word, yeah. this is what we're talking about. Because if you haven't got that base to go from, you can't have a successful conversation about where this exercise fits or no. what we're trying to achieve in the session. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and I, I still remember the day Tom and I sat down and, and you know, he, we, we were, you know, we, we had, he had all of this in place and we sat down in my office and we were like, well, we still have to figure out speed, right? You know, he's like, so him and I, just had a discussion and then, and, you know, well, like, uh, you know, it, it went something like, well, okay, well, we know what maximal velocity is. I mean, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty well accepted when we're talking, you know, so speed, what does speed mean? Speed means maximal velocity. Okay. Boom. That's done. What does acceleration mean? Well, that's going to be different depending on the level, but it's everything up to when you enter maximal velocity. Okay. That's straightforward. But then you get into things like speed endurance, special endurance and specific endurance, right? So speed endurance is the other one. So speed endurance to a middle distance coach is going to be what Tom and I eventually came up with, or probably Tom did more than me, but is special endurance, right? Incomplete recovery work, which is different from speed endurance, which to me is speed, maximal velocity, but taken longer, right? So you're, you're trying to extend that mass, maximal velocity. 
it that can only be done with complete recoveries, right? Well, if you, you know, and, and if you use incomplete recoveries, then that maximal speed will suffer. And then it becomes, which is not a bad thing. It, you just got to call it something else. You have to classify it differently, right? So, you know, so if it's incomplete recoveries, then we, we, we call that special endurance. And that can be any distance. It could be 20 meters if it's incomplete recoveries, because sooner or later, that incomplete recovery is going to catch up to you, right? And then it becomes special endurance. And so, um, and then specific endurance is endurance that is, you know, with complete recoveries that is more specific to race pace. And so that can be, or to the race distance, right? Sorry, race distance. So that can be applied to any distance. It could be marathon for crying out loud, right? You know, you, you know what I mean? But typically in sprints, what it means is, you know, um, if you're a 400 meter runner, it's going to be some configuration of twos, threes, fours, 400 meter runs, maybe fives, you know, with complete recoveries. When you get incomplete recoveries, it becomes special endurance, right? And so it's very simple. He, and he was so good at doing these graphics where he would do, would just, you just look at the graphic, it all made perfect sense, you know? And I, I think he contributed more to coach development and athletics than just about anybody in terms of a practically getting across concepts to people. I think Tom did, he just does not get enough credit for the, for the work that he did. You know, he took full advantage of his opportunity in Britain and, uh, and, and really did some great work. I'm not trying to stroke him, but you know, he did, he did really good. And I, I use all those charts today. I still use those things when I, when I trying to get something across when I lecture it's like, you know, I, I just don't think it can be said any better. I still use his Bondertrick classification graphic that he, that he did like God, 15 years ago or something 12 or 15 years ago. And, and uh, I still use that. I don't, I didn't, I can't come up with a better one, you know? And so anyways, well, yeah. it's, yeah, it's one of these things, again, as you say, even just those classifications there in the system as a whole. But I know you've obviously mentioned that, that you've got a few courses that you're, you've produced and shared. So what are some of the other projects you've got coming up in the next sort of 12 to 18 months that people might want to be aware of? Well, I mean, the big one for me is, is to get my, my infamous sport parent course done, which is sort of, uh, you know, I, I had this grand idea a couple of years ago to do a course for parents on, you know, on sport parenting. Right. And so to me, that meant three things. It meant number one, they had to have a basic understanding of the physical part of it. So everything that we discussed at the beginning here, progression, stuff like that, why they're important, what to look for. Um, they want, you know, uh, I say at the beginning of that course, at the end of this course, you should be able to, this is me talking to parents, you should be able to walk into any facility and look around and say, okay, well, that's bullshit. That's good. That's yeah. That, okay. I want my kid doing that. You know, this all looks good to me there. I'm bulletproof. Right. So that was the first course, which is almost done. <laughs> I'm selling it, but I, I still have to do a, There's like two modules on speed and strength. I have to do, which is, you know, and, um, and then there was going to be two other courses, one on understanding your athlete, which is more the sort of the athlete management end of things, psychological, but also physiological management of, you know, like, uh, you know, all of that. Um, and then how to deal with a coach. 
right? Like how to, how to understand coaching and how to deal with the coach. Cause if you don't, you know, if you have an issue with an athlete, then what are you going to, you know, how are you going to approach the coach? Because that's everything, right. You know, and my goal, and I never got to those second two courses. Yeah. I, but then what, I mean, it's, you know, like everything I do, it was too much. It was just a huge amount of, of input. And, and I had a bunch of people sort of take a, take it as a, you know, uh, like a pilot project. And I had Stu McMillan go through it. And he was like, he was like, man, he was like, look, man, like, it's just, it's great, but it's just so much. Right. And I have these, these summary videos, these graphic videos I did at the end of it. He said, that should be the course, just those videos. And so I'm, I'm, you know, but I've gotten busy and I haven't really, uh, you know, so I have to pare it down, but anyways, and it's not expensive, right? I charge 30 bucks us for the course. And so it's, it's on my site at eviltracksport.com. But anyways, but that's, I'm trying to get that done. Um, I'm doing, I'm actually involved in a, in a, in two or three different, um, facility projects here in Chicago, helping to get some facilities put in and yeah, I just, uh, shit just comes my way and I, you know, do it. And, and I, but I'm really getting into, I'm really glad I've kind of connected with James and some of the LTAD guy, Mike Young, who I brought up to my conference a few years ago, and he's got some courses on my site. So everybody likes Mike's stuff. Although the, you guys probably sell this stuff on your site. I don't know, but, but he does get, he's, he gets a, a cut of that. But uh, um, I, I think Mike is brilliant, like just brilliant. He, he's like Tom. He reminds me of Tom. He just does not get the credit he deserves for what he has contributed. Like it's crazy. I've literally, I've never, I'm not seen anything Mike's ever done that gave me that I had that I could ever debate. I wouldn't even begin a debate with, with half the, with, with every, with everything I've ever seen of his. And remember when I brought him my conference, we filmed it all. So I had to go through his stuff with a fine tooth comb and edit it for video. And I was just like, Holy, cause I didn't, I didn't see his presentations in real time. I saw them after. And I was like, looking at it going, Oh my God, like, why do I not see this guy everywhere? Why are people not, not that they aren't. I mean, he's very popular. He's very well respected, but to me, that everybody should be go. Everybody should be seeing his most basic stuff. I think what I think what he uh, maybe that didn't come out right, but but I think everybody should should be exposed to his work. That's a better way to put it. And and I think uh, although I don't know a lot of it, but from what I what I gained from his presentations, the work he does in North Carolina. I mean, it's it is a laboratory man of 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 working with developmental athletes. And so, you know, like you, you and I talked off, uh, off camera at the beginning of this, you know, it's like, uh, James changed, redirected my thinking in a few areas when I had him on the podcast. Right. It's like, you know, because I, you know, it's a long story, which I want, people can listen to that if they want, but basically, you know, everything around peak height velocity, which I kind of sort of dismissed, not because I didn't believe in it, but because it's just something that I thought, oh my God, I'm, I, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to, to track this. I'm just, there's no way I'm going to be able to measure these heights. It's impractical. But then in talking with him, like you don't have, you don't necessarily have to, if you can't, but, but that doesn't, doesn't mean it's not worthy of your, your brain power of your consideration. And so 
I, I've now read now that that whole thing around peak high velocity has entered back into my vocabulary. I'm using it now when I, you know, when I will use it now moving forward, you know, and it's the same thing with Mike, like there's certain types of strike that I stayed right away from before uh, because I was probably not educated enough. I hadn't explored it enough, but in looking through Mike's stuff, I was like, yeah, okay, well, if Mike's doing it, he's thought it out, right? Like, you know, and I, you know, I, I'm lazy when it comes to doing the research, right? So I'd rather just go to Mike and go, hey, Mike, man, like, should I be doing this or not? You know, <laughs> and, and I know I'm going to get a straight answer from a guy who has probably, he's, he's researched it forward to backward and he's implemented it. And he, and you know, that's enough for me. Right. So. So you've mentioned uh, your website already, eviltracksport.com. Where else can people track you down? Is that the best place or are you out and about on social yeah. media? Not, not at all. Yeah. I'm on social media, but I never check it. Like I, I never, you know, I, I, I use it for sending out. That's my dog. Sorry. Um, um, but I never check it. Um, so, you know, well, I do, but rarely. So, you know, really send me uh, a message. If people want to see, you can directly email eviltrack, E-V-E-L-T-R-A-K at me.com. That's my email. You can email me. I, I try to get back to everybody if I can. Uh, Evil Track Sport is the same E-V-E-L-T-R-A-K uh, sport.com. That's the site. And Evil Track just comes from it's my, it was my first and only email handle back when email was, you're only allowed eight characters. So when I wanted evilly track, wouldn't let me do it. So it was evil track. That's how I got it. So. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, it's been awesome picking your brain today. Thanks so much for sharing. I think what, no you, what you shared about the importance of a framework is massive. And I really encourage people to dig into that if they haven't already. But thanks for your time today. It's, it's great to be able to speak with coaches of your expertise and, and see what you guys value. So it's really, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, uh, thank you. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. I think it's important. Keep it up. All right. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram using the account at LTAD Network, as well as Twitter at LTAD Network. And find our website, www.ltadnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. And don't forget to get your seven-day free trial to our online platform, as well as 50% off your first month with the code LTADVIP50.